Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello and welcome back. Today we're talking all things Pierre Bourdieu, one of the most well-known and widely used social theorists in all of education research. In particular, I'm talking with Dr. Troy Heffernan. Troy is soon to join Manchester University in the UK, and he's the author of a new book with Springer Press titled Bourdieu and Higher Education, Life in the Modern University. In this conversation, Troy gave me a crash course in how Bourdieu made sense of his own place within academia, and also how Bourdieu's most famous concepts apply to making sense of everyday life within universities and other education settings. So first off, I asked Troy for a brief introduction to who Pierre Bourdieu was and what central concerns were driving his work. What Bourdieu was really about was about power and dynamics, and that's what interested him most. I mean, he wrote about journalism and real estate and, and art, but for me, it's always been about the power and dynamics that I found most interesting. And I think he also came along at a interesting time in history. Uh, most of his work started forming in the 1960s and 1970s, which is sort of the exact time where we see this idea of the American dream start to take shape and the idea that the harder you work, uh, you'll be rewarded and success comes through hard work. And that's the opposite of what Bourdieu was really about because he saw these power structures that were, you know, in place from childhood. And, you know, he had this idea that you were born into what you were likely to become. Uh, And some people don't like that. But that's kind of what he was unpacking. So it was kind of fatalistic approach in some ways, but also a focus on everyday life and everyday experience. Absolutely. So, I, you know, is the whole idea of even before you were born, your life is pretty predictable for most people. Uh, and, yeah, so <laughs> I, that's you know, what, you know, is it a stereotype? That's like one of the criticisms. Should we really have this idea of your, your future is determined? And, you know, perhaps we shouldn't and we shouldn't think that that is 100% the case. But his idea was, you know what, most of the time it is. And if we work on that basis, we could probably actually make some changes to improve, you know, communities and society. But, of course, Bourdieu is a lot more than just a lot of stereotypes. And he's got, you know, some basic concepts, habitats, capital and field. And I guess most listeners to this podcast are probably aware of those concepts in, uh, in isolation. How do you make sense of these concepts working together? I think as base concepts, and that's kind of one of the things that I really like about Bourdieu, is that we can start off with habitus, capital and field, and then so much of his work expands from that. But if we think of habitus as basically being what someone is and where they've come from, I usually prefer to talk about cultural trajectory rather than habitus, which is sort of one of the next steps that he uses. Um, You know, at any point in time, where someone is in their life, you know, we can mark that down as their experiences and what they've done and where they've been and the circumstances they were born into. But then, you know, when we talk about field and capital, that's where the variables are. Usually people talk about capital and then field, but I always sort of go straight to the field because knowing what the field wants is what makes your capital relevant. Um, And it's sort of, I always in my own work, try and really break down the field as probably the most pivotal part of understanding how someone's going to fit and how they might succeed or why they might fail. 
And so, I mean, as you say, Bourdieu has applied to lots and lots of different areas, lots of different fields, but he's especially beloved of education and education researchers. Um, so, I mean, in your opinion, what is so valuable about these ideas of cultural trajectory and field and capital and habitat that brings to our understanding of education specifically? I think in education, there's inherently this idea, again, that the hardest working student is the one that succeeds. And that is exactly what Bourdieu was not about. I think one of his main ideas that I always use is that merit in education was a myth. And people like Diane Ray and Pat Thompson in their work on primary schools uh, very much follow that idea of before a student even walks through the gate on the first day of school, how they're likely to achieve is already mapped out. And I think that's really important because it's so easy to fund schools and think about education as a merit-based activity, uh, and it's really not. So, I mean, in some ways, it's kind of going against the orthodoxy of, you know, as you say, if you work hard, you'll succeed. And, you know, this kind of, particularly in America as well. So, I mean, it's a very kind of European perspective, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that is good of applies everywhere. Because I think even today, you know, a sociologist or someone in education or critical education would have an idea, or very much definitely knows, that the idea of hard work pays off isn't always the case. It might be one of the factors, but it's a factor in amongst a hundred others. In society, of course, and politicians and governments, when they're talking about funding and schools and teacher levels, uh, we usually tend to pretty quickly go back to this idea of you just have to work hard and you'll be okay, and what's happening around you doesn't really make a difference. Uh, but we're education researchers and we know that's not the case. Absolutely. And now you mentioned Diane Ray and research using Bourdieu in primary schools, but you're very much focused on higher education. So I wanted to kind of spe look, think about how Bourdieu is brought to bear on higher education. So just to give down some basics, I mean, he wrote a book in 1990, Homo Academicus, which seems to be central. So what was Bourdieu doing in this book? And how does this give us a framework for kind of making sense of higher education? So when I read Homo Academicus, I view it as Bourdieu's way of exploring a system where he knew he didn't fit in. So for a little bit of backstory, Bourdieu was born in 1930 and by his own words to a poor farming family in a impoverished part of France. Through chance, or he uses the word miracle, uh, he managed to become a philosophy student and one of the most globally recognised sociologists. He knew he didn't fit in in higher education. And that was the view that he used in most of his research, but is really explored in that book. Uh, he saw himself as someone who could look around the faculty, the university, the higher education sector uh, with a different gaze to the people who were there who believed they fit. He never thought he fit. He knew he didn't fit. He knew he was lucky. But around him, he saw people that just felt I don't want to say that they deserve to be there, but it wasn't a miracle to them that they were there. It was a natural progression of their life. And that's what he's exploring in that book. And I think that's, again, it comes down to power and privilege. Do you deserve to be somewhere? Can you speak out against somewhere if you think it's a miracle that you were there? Uh, no, it becomes a lot harder. So the entitlement of academics, I suppose, is probably a key thing. To what extent does this analysis of kind of 1980s and 1970s French academia hold true for the 2020s. I mean, we're living in this neoliberal managerialist university context. Forms of capital and power feel quite different today. I mean, 
as do the lines of conflict. What he, what he was talking about was not fitting in in the liberal or progressive university. And I think it's important to think about even then, power and dynamics played a role as to who got to go, who got to succeed. The liberal university, I would argue, doesn't exist anymore. But we didn't wake up one day to have the liberal university disappear. Incremental changes basically took the liberal university from us. But because they were incremental changes and because of the fact that I would argue that today power dynamics plays an even larger role than it did before, even if the examples Woodrow wasn't talking about, the theories he was working with and the implications of of your habitus and capital fitting into higher education are probably more relevant as a theory today than it was when he wrote it for the most part. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's not just Homo Academicus as well. I mean, you've done a lot of work with Bourdieu in higher education settings and, and he wrote dozens of books. I mean, what other kind of sources, what other bits of his writing do you draw upon when trying to make sense of contemporary higher education? Well, I'll start out by saying as someone who came to education from a history background, my introduction to Bourdieu came from books about Bourdieu, not his own books. And that began with sort of uh, Webb et al. wrote a book called Understanding Bourdieu in 2002. And that was a much easier introduction because it's hard to pick up what's essentially a philosophy book and make sense of it. But that was how I started my Bourdieu history. But once I sort of got a, a feeling of what was going on, um, his Two books were published in English, at least, in 1977. One was His Theory of Practice, which is the detailed breakdown of capital, habitus and field. And the other one was Reproduction in Education and Culture, which is, of course, incredibly relevant because it's a detailed discussion of why people have trajectories in education and why someone's success is kind of guided by their parents and their family and their community. But then in 1992, uh, there's a Book, I think it's called Reflexive, Reflexivity in Sociology. Uh, but that's what you're talking about, his theories and concepts, 25, 30 years later. And, you know, since then, he had had time to think and reflect and society had changed. And he's still very much in academia at that point. And I always found that book to be fascinating just to see someone reflect on the classic books and articles that you've read that he sort of wrote decades earlier. And what did he reflect upon? What did he think he'd got right? What did he think needed elaboration? I feel like he tended to talk less about what he didn't get right. But I think what he didn't get right wasn't so much that he got things wrong, it's that he didn't take things into account. Um, so the obvious ones are issues around race, gender, sexuality, um, but they were missing. What he reflected on more was kind of the beginnings of the fact that he hadn't actually counted enough on how much power and privilege would impact on higher education and the fact that things that he and other people realised were happening in the 1960s and had identified as problems hadn't actually changed by the time we hit the 1990s. Yeah. If anything, they'd gotten worse because mass market higher education had taken place Universities were starting to have to compete for student numbers, uh, which, of course, was sort of the decline of, generally speaking, government funding. And so, yeah, he knew that there were problems and, you know, what do you do? 30 years later, after doing the same work, the same argument, no one's listened. And here we are 30 years after that. Exactly. Same thing. Now, can we dive down into kind of your own practical use of Bourdieu? You know, 
and looking at power and dynamics um, in higher education. I was interested by one of your recent papers, examining university leadership and the increase in workplace hostility through a Bourdieuian lens. I mean, what were you examining here and how is Bourdieu helping you illustrate this aspect of higher education? So that paper came at the end of a research project about the mental health of higher education leaders, but primarily middle leaders. Um, and it became clear that one of the biggest factors in their mental health was hostility with staff. And that hostility was being created because of issues with the corporatized university. And the primary, the primary issue there being the decisions about how a university is run by, might be made by a vice chancellor or a president or an executive team, but they don't have day-to-day -day contact with academics and students. It's the middle leaders who do. So that's a pretty clear problem. And then it was also very clear that the problem is that academics knew or know that the leaders who are ahead of them, so their deans, are now managers, not academics. That causes a pretty clear problem, but Bourdieu provided a really clear way to understand why that was a problem and why it was a predictable problem and why it's a problem that's not just going to fix itself. So if we think about the capital that used to lead to someone becoming a dean, well, the university system, sort of as we know it, is a thousand years old, even if the first 600 years of that was religion-based. But either way, the senior scholar was the one who became the leader uh, because they were deemed to have the best knowledge of the faculty and have the best ideas of how to move the research and teaching forward. That also made it very easy for them to talk to academics. Now we're in a situation where the people who lead the faculty are often not academics, they're not researchers. Many people have never been in academia before because you don't need to be as you know, deemed in the corporate university, you just need to understand the spreadsheets. So if we think about the capital and what used to be respected and what used to lead to leadership, it was a very clear trajectory and one that sort of synchronised with the idea of academic work and research and teaching. If you're going to have someone come in who has no history of that and doesn't understand the implications of what they're saying, it's of course going to cause tension. And this idea of um, doxa, the rules of the game. So from an academic point of view, the rules of the game are about, you know, getting good journal articles, research grants, knowledge, teaching. I guess the rules of the game are from the corporate university managerial perspective are slightly different. So again, there's a kind of tension there, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the tension that causes the problems. I think it's probably just from a psychological standpoint, much harder to be told by someone above you in a hierarchical sense that you have to hit these targets when they've either never hit those targets uh, because they've risen through an administrative process or they're not an academic and they've come from further afield and that's kind of even worse then because they don't actually know what they're requiring you to do and what it takes. Yeah, that does sound like the everyday experience of working in a university for, for worse and for better, I guess. Now, uh, just a couple more questions. Um, I think when I started my PhD in the 1990s, there was kind of a quite a healthy cult of Bourdieu. Um, and education researchers can be a little bit unsophisticated sometimes in the way that they pick up on the theory. And, and Bourdieu was critical of people using theory for theory's sake. So, I mean, what, what are a few things about Bourdieu that you think are easily missed or oversimplified in the way that education researchers pick him up? I think one of the great things about Bourdieu is how simple habitus, capital and field can be explained because uh, you can explain it in 30 seconds or you can go to the books that Bourdieu and others have written about that same fact. 
But I think one of the things that can sometimes get people using Bujur into trouble is that he provided an understanding and a working knowledge of things that most of us, particularly if you're in an area, already suspect. So I don't think you need to know who Bujur is to know that, statistically speaking, a child from a wealthy family is more likely to go to an exclusive school and university and have a career compared to somebody who's living below the poverty line. So when we're talking about issues where we have a suspicion of what the answer is going to be, it's very easy to then just apply Bourdieu over the top and just have a quick, here's the habitus capital and field of that situation. But the risk there is when you do that, you actually rob the audience of the detailed work that Bourdieu provided that you could use to have a deeper understanding because, yes, we have a sense of what's happening and a sense of why, but it's the option of having that full breakdown of understanding just how predictable and just what the consequences of these life issues are going to be uh, that can easily be missed. So in other words, bringing Bourdieu in as the kind of the conclusion is the wrong way of doing it. You need to start very much with the kind of the whole toolkit that he gives you. Absolutely. And I mean, it doesn't need to be a detailed assessment, but it's just when you really can Pat Thompson says, throw it over like a tablecloth. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's a very nice way of putting it. I mean, just finally then, we talked about Bourdieu 30 years on from when he started and 30 years on that. What, where do you see him in 30 years' time? How do you see his legacy holding up? I think in terms of power and dynamics and what it means in higher education, I think we're lucky that we can benefit from people now doing work around sort of the issues of race and gender and disability. But moving forward, I think his work's going to become even more important because one of the things that has happened in the last 60 years is that universities have realised what it actually looks like when people can see what power and privilege does inside their gates. And I would say that they've started to try and hide that and they have started to promote the idea that they're places of equity uh, and, you know, some people might be doing some good work towards that, but COVID showed us that most of that's superficial. But now that we're in a world where universities benefit from disguising what goes on, Fudger is going to be a way to, for people brave enough to go looking for what universities don't want you to see to actually highlight to a, a new generation of, of readers just what's going on and why it's so important and what we need to do. Because changes need to happen, you know, Universities are still so long after people have started pointing out basically places of privilege. Uh, and yes, they're doing much better jobs now at letting people in who, you know, wouldn't have had access even 20 years ago. But are they succeeding at the same rates? We know they're not. I mean, clearly, there's a huge amount to unpack here. And as you say, universities are not going to be getting better soon. So I'm sure there's going to be using Bourdieu in 30, 60, 90 years' time. But thanks ever so much for taking the time to talk about it, Troy. Super interesting. Look forward to reading the book properly. Um, and yep, yeah, good luck. Thank you very much for inviting me, Neil.